Today's scripture reading is Judges 7 verses 1 to 8 in the New International Version. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is, Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told them, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the three hundred, who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. In Hebrews 11 we read that through faith Gideon conquered. In the story of the life of Gideon we learn of truths that are important for our Christian faith today, truths that should kick us into action. So let's learn about those truths today. When you read the book of Judges, you don't need to get too far in before you come across a pattern that will follow you for the entirety of the book. The people you read did right in their own eyes and turned away from the Lord. Then after a time, they get into trouble, as always happens when you turn away from God. And then they find themselves in need of saving. And so they cry out to the Lord to deliver them, and he does by sending what is called a judge. Not a judge like we would think of the term, but instead like a leader who is directly appointed by God. And I point this out because this is the situation that we find ourselves in as we come to Judges chapter 6. The people have turned away from God to which the Midianite empire arose, taking one look at the Israelites and thinking, free labor! to which the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob find themselves once again in chains, and so they cry out to God to save them. And to do that, the Lord, we read, sends a judge. And this judge's name was Gideon. And important to understanding his story is to know that he was an inconsequential son from an inconsequential family in an inconsequential clan in a largely inconsequential tribe of the people of Israel. And when we first meet Gideon, we see this insignificance on display as far from being in governance or in front of some great assembly as we might expect a savior of a people to be, Instead, he is quietly threshing wheat in an empty wine press alone. He's doing this so that he is out of sight of any possible Midianite spies who may look to take the fruits of his labor, painting a picture for us not as some great man, but instead as someone that is young and scared and all by himself. And then Gideon, we read an angel calling out in verse 12. 
The Lord is with you, O mighty warrior. And Gideon's response over that is priceless. Because to me, you can almost hear him snork laughing at that description of himself. Pardon? I am the weakest man in my family. I am no warrior, Gideon says. To which the angel essentially replies, don't worry about that. God's got your back. To which two-thirds of the story that follows shows this to be spectacularly true. First, O judge of Israel, tear down the idols to other gods among the children of Jacob. During the numerous times when the Israelites fall away from God throughout the book of Judges, we read that it never takes long before they start to worship in his place, the gods of the other nearby nations. Because obviously they do. That is what happens when you put God aside in your life. You start worshipping other things in his place, now the same as then. Just now we have ourselves and politics and easy credit and consumer goods, while then they had a goat-headed fertility god. It was not that the Israelites made the switch to purposely spite the Lord, but instead just over time, if your relationship with God is not strong, other things seep into the place he once held. And before you know it, altars to Baal and Asherah are scattered across the land. And it is to these altars of lesser gods that we read Gideon, this son of no one, showed his wrath, purging them until all hints of the other gods were swept from his family's land. And this has the, ex the effect that we would expect to see. With those extended cousins of his who followed these other gods, furious that he would do something so brazen as that, and then also terrified that he would even think to risk the wrath of these other gods. But just as they move to strike down the young judge, we read Gideon's father rebukes them. We are the children of God. Why do you speak in defense of Baal? With whom do your loyalties lie? He essentially yells at each of them, and they relent. Second, O judge of Israel, break the chains that held the Israelites in bondage, and then break the hand that held it. Then we read, The Spirit of the Lord again came upon Gideon, and soon a ragtag army from across the surrounding tribes rose to follow the young man of no consequence as he marched to meet the armed hosts of Midian. We can picture thousands behind Gideon, tens of thousands even, all eager to cast off the binds of their oppressors. But then, when they arrive, we read they saw the situation for the first time. Because in the Midianite camps, we read, were hundreds of thousands each dressed for war. A more certain death it is hard to picture to even imagine coming into Judges 7, but you just have to read on to see one play out. Go with your men to the water, the Lord said to Gideon, and so he did, and his men drank deeply. Each man you see lapping the water with their tongues, they will be who it is that will stand against Midian. And when they were all done, only three hundred of the tens of thousands remained. It is with these few men that we will break the chains of Midian, the Lord told to Gideon. And then, through the man of no consequence, although he was undoubtedly terrified, we see still he obeyed. 
Sneak up to the camp, the Lord said that night. Have your men bring a torch and a pitcher and a trumpet. Surround the Midianites on all sides without their knowing, and then break the pitchers with a great crash and light the torches and wave them in the sky and then blow the trumpets with a great blast and in doing so, see what the Lord your God can do. And such a terror and confusion, we read, fell on the Midianites, that before the night was through, their great host had all but fallen to the Lord and this man Gideon, who was suddenly of quite a bit of consequence amongst his people. And finally, O judge of Israel, lead the people to God. And here is where things change for the worst. Gideon, we read, as he came into the latter half of chapter 7 and then on into chapter 8, was changed by this great victory for his people. We can see this pretty readily because soon word got out that two of the leaders of the Midianites had escaped, and Gideon became obsessed with trying to find them. He tracked them to the corners of the land, murdering all those who stood between him and his prize, be they fellow Israelites or not. And in the end, both of these men fell at Gideon's hand, personally. Their bodies, we are told, were richly decorated, and Gideon stripped them of their gold, keeping it for himself. And with this victory complete, the rest of the Israelites praised Gideon, lifting him from obscurity and hoisting him as a hero of the people. And to this praise, Gideon, we read, asks for one thing. The first cut of the plunder from the battle, the portion saved for the greatest hero amongst everyone who fought. Forty-three pounds of gold, we read, Gideon received. And with it, he cast an idol that he kept in the land of his family, marking them to all around as people of importance, an act that would have lifted Gideon and his family out of obscurity that they were born into and placed in them amongst the highest echelons of his tribe. For while the others had idols of wood and stone, his family's was made of the gold of the enemies that were undefeated before Gideon met them in battle. And we read this idol was, to the judge and his family, a snare for the rest of their lives. And in time we read, once again, the people fell away from God and did what was right in their own eyes. There are two truths about our Christian faith that I want to draw from the story of Gideon today. Truths that are almost opposite to each other, but that are also both incredibly important for us to internalize and then in turn to live by as well. Here's the first. With God, things are doable. In the story of Gideon, we are told again and again by multiple people that Gideon is not an important man. He is an unimportant son from an unimportant family in an unimportant tribe that in that exact period of time was a part of an unimportant people next to the might of their neighbors, the Midianites. Gideon himself says as much right at the beginning of the story. And yet Gideon is who God chooses to be his judge. I would say more than that even. It's probably actually because of this insignificance that God chose Gideon to be his judge. 
It's for the same reason that when Gideon went out to face the Midianites with his ragtag army and it was parsed back to 300, that was done for a reason as well. God wanted there to be no questions on the matter, that while Gideon led the people, it was because of God's leading that things went down the way they did. On his own, no one questioned that Gideon was of no consequence, but with God at his back, well, the results kind of speak for themselves. And this, I dare say, is a very valuable lesson for us Christians to keep in mind these days, because when we look out into the world right now, the problems we in the church are called to grapple with, they they seem pretty insurmountable. We are called to be for peace in a time when weapons exist that can vaporize the world. We are called to work to be for life in a time when the earth is quickly becoming uninhabitable. If you watch the news, we are called to spread the good news of Christ in a time where for billions of people, that good news is either seen as old fashioned or is possibly literally a crime. We feel like the 300 up against the hundreds of thousands. But here's the thing. Like those 300 Israelites with Gideon, one of those that's with us just so happens to be the uncontested God of all creation. The same God that led Gideon to an impossible victory. The same God who sustains all of creation from moment to moment. The same God who can see all things and who knows all things and who is all-powerful and who again and again says and then proves that he loves us with everything he is. The problems before us Christians today, they seem insurmountable, and that is because for just us as individuals and inconsequential people, really, they are. But what are they to this God who promises that he will help us to meet these challenges head on? I assure you that with God... Things are doable. That is the first truth to take from the story of Gideon for our Christian faith. But here's the second. And while the first one lifts us up, this one is more a warning to keep us in check. In the story of Gideon, we are met with a man who is keenly aware that God is calling him to do things obviously impossible for him to do on his own. But he draws strength from that, boldness. God is with him after all, so obviously it doesn't really matter if the Midianites outnumber his men hundreds to one, because the balance of power is still literally infinitely in his favor. It is not that Gideon is inconsequential to the story, of course. God chose to work with him after all, which means he matters to what happens a lot, but instead... Just that when it comes to who is the party in that relationship doing the real heavy lifting, well, it's not the one who begins the story by saying he is inconsequential. But as the passage goes on, we can see something in Gideon's opinion of himself change, where he begins by bringing glory to God following the Lord and freeing his people. By the end of the story, you get the feeling that he is more continuing on for his own benefit. 
He punishes his own people who stand in his way from accomplishing his goal. He takes the glory of his conquest for himself by asking for the prime cuts of the plunder. And then, worst of all, Gideon takes all that treasure and he casts an idol for his family to show the world around him how great they are among the people of Israel, even though he does it by directly acting against God. In the beginning of the story, of Gideon. He's a man who is keenly aware of where he stands before God. And by the end, he is someone who figures himself so great that obviously he can do something so brazen as essentially claiming it was him, great Gideon, who won the day for Israel. Sure, God helped, but it was him, Gideon, a man that was great of stock, as the idol serves to prove, who actually led the fighting. So it is him, not God, who is deserving the lion's share of the praise. So here's a hypothetical situation for you. Imagine one day you stumble upon an idea for a ministry that is just brilliant. So you put it into action, and it is just bonkers successful. Within a year, thousands come to know God, and poverty in the area is lowered dramatically, and the streets find themselves cleaned up. It is one great ministry, to be sure, and people come to recognize that success, and as they always do when success is so big and obvious, they come to tell you that they are impressed. I want to ask you a question about that. How long, given that success, do you think it would take before you began to think like Gideon? How long do you think it would take before you began to wonder if perhaps all that you had accomplished was more because of your skill and hard work than because of God working with you, blessing what you have done? Now, a seemingly unrelated example to bring home where I'm going with this. Who here has had someone tell them that they are impressed by something that they have achieved that isn't church-related? Maybe something with business, or maybe something not at all money-related, like a good score on a test. Everyone has something. Then that person who was curious asked you how they could do the same thing, copy your success, to which you found yourself answering back something like, well, I guess I was just smart, and I just worked really hard, and I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, and I did this, and I did, and I, I, I. I'm betting over our lives this has happened to a lot of us, and certainly it's happened to me, but tell me, how is that answer not exactly what Gideon did as well? Taking praise wholly for ourselves that also belongs to God. We think of these two examples as completely separate because one involves church and the other doesn't, but I mean, Gideon took praise for leading an army, and we shouldn't think of that as too church-like either. Again and again throughout scripture, we are told the blessings of life come from God, and we are told that God is with us throughout our day-to-day. How can we believe that and then separate our minds into a Christian realm where God helps and another other realm that has business and school and anything else where all the success comes solely from ourselves. You can't, at least not honestly, but yet we do it all the time. 
We are very quick to say that we did all these things on our own with no help whatsoever from anyone else, which I can't help but think must rub God rather poorly. And this isn't me saying that you didn't work hard and so you don't deserve any credit for anything. It's just me saying that God has a hand in our lives and so praise is always due to him as well. This isn't even me saying that every time that you are asked a question like that, you should go on to some long speech about Jesus being with you. That would be super socially awkward, which is something I don't think Christians need to also be known for. But instead, what I'm just saying is that there are not successes in your life that God doesn't deserve some praise for as well. Thankfully, There is one easy thing that we can do to address exactly this problem. Frequent prayers of thanksgiving. A wonderful way to put things into perspective and to address exactly this issue. Because if you are frequently thanking God for how he works with you, it's hard to come to think that you are doing it all on your own. That is the second truth to take from the story of Gideon. Be careful not to take all the praise from God. He is the one deserving the lion's share. In the story of Gideon, there are these two truths about our Christian faith. Two truths that are close to being opposite to one another, but are both fundamentally important. With God, we learn that all things can be done, so let us live in this truth, confidently building his kingdom even when it seems impossible, because with God by our side, everything he sets us to is not only possible, but also surely almost already done. But also, when we do this important work, Let's not forget that our successes come from God working with us. So in all that we do, we should also remember to pray thanksgiving for exactly that. Amen.